0: Virginia Woolf, Mrs. Dalloway, Part 2. We spoke last time about Clarissa Dalloway's recollections of her old friend Sally Seton. In this part of the novel, we will meet another old friend of hers, Peter Walsh, and Peter's impending arrival from abroad arouses some painful memories for Clarissa. We learn that Peter had once proposed to Clarissa at Borton, and she refused him. This is the time period that Clarissa keeps recalling throughout the novel. Peter has been in India for the past five years, and is now in love with a married woman. He calls upon Clarissa while she is mending a dress, and as he sits beside her, both recall the same painful memories. This visit occurs at 11 o'clock, as we are reminded by the chiming of the bells of Big Ben. Before Peter enters the room, we get a brief perception of him from the viewpoint of Lucy, the maid, who characterizes him as elderly, although he tells himself that he was only just past 50. Both Peter and Clarissa vividly recall the same events, rather awkwardly for both of them, because they are both full of this memory that unites them another one of Virginia Woolf's techniques of having two characters in the same moment recalling the same time in the past. Initially, Peter notices that Clarissa looks older, while she sees him as just the same, quote, the same queer look, the same check shoot, a little out of the straight his face is, a little thinner, drier perhaps, but he looks awfully well, and just the same, End quote. She finds herself wondering how she had arrived at her decision not to marry Peter, that awful summer, as she thinks of it, and perhaps lost in that moment, she asks him if he remembered the way the blinds used to flap at Borton. This triggers in Peter a chain of painful memories. Why go back like this to the past, he thought. Why make him think of it again? Why make him suffer when she had tortured him so infernally? Why? Clarissa's memory of Borton merges with her earlier memories of being there as a child with her parents. Do you remember the lake, she said in an abrupt voice under the pressure of an emotion which caught her heart, made the muscles of her throat stiff, and contracted her lips in a spasm, as she said, lake. For she was a child throwing bread to the ducks between her parents, and at the same time a grown woman Coming to her parents who stood by the lake, holding her life in her arms, which, as she neared them, grew larger and larger in her arms, until it became a whole life, a complete life, which she put down by them and said, This is what I have made of it, this. End quote. This awkward scene with Peter, lasting half an hour by the chimes of Big Ben, reveals some things about him. He's very emotional. He bursts into tears at one point. He was expelled, or sent down, from Oxford, and in fact has had a lot of setbacks and failures in his life. He is in love with a woman whose husband is a major in the Indian Army and who has two small children. But the bigger question is whether he is still in love with Clarissa. Just on the verge of asking Clarissa if she is happy with her husband, Richard, they are interrupted by Clarissa's daughter, Elizabeth, who enters the room, and after being introduced to her, Peter makes a hasty departure. As he runs out of the room, Clarissa shouts, Remember my party tonight, over the sounds of traffic and the chiming of the clocks striking the half hour. After he flees Clarissa's at 11.30, we get several pages of Peter's perceptions and reflections as he is wandering. He notices an attractive young woman, and in a passage that probably sounds rather creepy to us today, though no harm is done, follows her for several blocks, at one point imagining that he would ask her, come and have an ice, he would say, and she would answer perfectly simply, oh yes. That sounds more than a little like Eliot's J. Alfred Prufrock. But when the woman reaches her home, Peter is content, thinking, well, I've had my fun. After this episode, Peter arrives at Regent's Park, recalling visits there as a child, recalling Clarissa and her daughter, and has the thought that, quote, women live much more in the past than we do, end quote, which is more than a little ironic given his own preoccupation with the past. He sits on a park bench, falls asleep, and dreams, and we see him through the eyes of a gray nurse who is walking a baby in a perambulator, a pram. One of our questions at this point is probably why Clarissa turned down Peter's offer of marriage and why she married Richard Dalloway instead. Very early in the novel, where it's easy to miss because we don't know the full story at the time, Clarissa is remembering how she and Peter used to argue, and she thinks she had been right, and she had too not to marry him, for in marriage a little license, a little independence there must be between people living together day in and day out in the same house, which Richard gave her, and she him. Where was he this morning, for instance? some committee she never asked what but with peter everything had to be shared everything gone into and it was intolerable and when it came to that scene in the little garden by the fountain she had to break with him or they would have been destroyed both of them ruined she was convinced we get a little more of the story of the break up of peter and clarissa after he awakens from his dream Quote, he woke with extreme suddenness, saying to himself, The death of the soul. Peter thinks back to a time at Borton in the early 1890s when he was in love with Clarissa and there were friends present, and there is a commentary here upon social class. They were talking about a man who had married his housemaid, one of the neighboring squires, he had forgotten his name. He had married his housemaid, and she had been brought to Borton to call. An awful visit it had been. She was absurdly overdressed, like a cockatoo, Clarissa had said, imitating her, and she never stopped talking. On and on she went, on and on. Clarissa imitated her. Then somebody said, Sally Seton it was. Did it make any real difference to one's feelings to know that before they'd married, she had had a baby? In those days, in mixed company, it was a bold thing to say. He could see Clarissa now turning bright pink, somehow contracting and saying, "'Oh, I shall never be able to speak to her again,' whereupon the whole party, sitting round the tea table, seemed to wobble. It was very uncomfortable. He hadn't blamed her for minding the fact, since in those days a girl brought up as she was knew nothing— but it was her manner that annoyed him, timid, hard, something arrogant, unimaginative, prudish, the death of the soul he had said that instinctively, ticketing the moment as he used to do- the death of her soul End quote. and then Peter recalls Sally Seaton, she was very unlike Clarissa, very dark, that is, having dark hair and she used to smoke cigars in her bedroom. She had either been engaged to somebody or quarreled with her family. Sally and Peter had always had this queer power of communicating without words, and the two had been friends. It was apparently on this same day that Peter is remembering that, at dinner, he noticed Clarissa speaking with a man beside her. He had a sudden revelation She will marry that man, he said to himself. He didn't even know his name. For, of course, it was that afternoon, that very afternoon, that Dalloway had come over, and Clarissa called him Wickham. That was the beginning of it all. Somebody had brought him over, and Clarissa got his name wrong. She introduced him to everybody as Wickham. At last he said, My name is Dalloway. That was his first view of Richard a fair young man, rather awkward, sitting on a deck chair and blurting out, My name is Dalloway. Sally got hold of it. Always after that, she called him, My name is Dalloway. I might note here that Wickham is the name of the deceitful seducer in Jane Austen's Pride and Prejudice. All that evening in Borton long ago, Peter is torn with conflicting emotions. As the party prepares to go out boating on the moonlight, Peter feels left out and plans to stay behind, but then Clarissa comes back to fetch him. come along, she said, they're waiting. He had never felt so happy in the whole of his life. Without a word, they made it up. They walked down to the lake. He had 20 minutes of perfect happiness. Her voice, her laugh, her dress, something floating, white, crimson. Her spirit, Her adventurousness. She made them all disembark and explore the island. She startled a hen. She laughed. She sang. And all the time, he knew perfectly well Dalloway was falling in love with her. She was falling in love with Dalloway. But it didn't seem to matter. Nothing mattered. They sat on the ground and talked, he and Clarissa. They went in and out of each other's minds without any effort. And then, in a second, it was over. He said to himself as they were getting into the boat, She will marry that man, dully, without any resentment. But it was an obvious thing Dalloway would marry Clarissa. End quote. At one point, as Sally mocks the young man with that phrase, My name is Dalloway, Clarissa gets annoyed and rapped out sharply, We've had enough of that feeble joke. This confirms to Peter that there is some kind of understanding between Dalloway and Clarissa, and there is no hope for him. Back in the novel's present, also in the park where Peter Walsh has been sleeping, are Septimus and Rezia Smith. We are reminded again of Septimus's ailment. I want to read a brief passage from an essay by Karen Meester called Trauma and Recovery in Virginia Woolf's Mrs. Dalloway. De Meester relates Wolff's narrative form to the experience of trauma as follows. Wolff's stream of consciousness form also corresponds to the trauma survivor's perception of time. The survivor's traumatized mind apprehends the traumatic event as ever-present, and his memories of the event often exist in the present consciousness as encapsulated images and fragments of thought That are juxtaposed against other non traumatic memories, but do not meaningfully relate to them sequentially or chronologically. The survivor cannot think of the traumatic event in chronological terms, as in, this was my life before, this is what happened, this is what I became, and he struggles to describe his traumatic experience in a language that insists on was and will be when the trauma world knows only is. Consequently, he is unable to reintegrate the traumatic event into his personal life history and ultimately to re-envision the event as a critical moment in his life, but not one that must inevitably define his identity. Wolf similarly contracts time, intermingling the past and future with the present in a continuous flow of narrative time. Wolf's readers like the survivor contemplating the meaning of the traumatic event, cannot apprehend the text chronologically because, as Joseph Frank observes, the meaning of the text does not emerge from temporal relationships but rather from spatial ones. End of quote. A good example of this narrative form is a memorable passage involving Septimus's perception in response to a simple statement by his wife. It is time, said Rezia. The word time split its husk, poured its riches over him, and from his lips fell like shells, like shavings from a plane, without his making them hard, white, imperishable words, and flew to attach themselves to their places in an ode to time, an immortal ode to time. He sang, "'Evans answered from behind the tree. "'The dead were in Thessaly,' Evans sang, "'among the orchids. "'There they waited till the war was over, "'and now the dead, now Evans himself. "'For God's sake, don't come!' Septimus cried out, "'for he could not look upon the dead. "'But the branches parted. "'A man in gray was actually walking towards them. "'It was Evans! "'But no mud was on him, no wounds. "'He was not changed.' I must tell the whole world, Septimus cried, raising his hands as the dead man in the gray suit came nearer, raising his hand like some colossal figure who has lamented the fate of man for ages in the desert alone with his hands pressed to his forehead, furrows of despair on his cheeks, and now sees light on the desert's edge which broadens and strikes the iron-black figure, and Septimus half-rose from his chair. And with legions of men prostrate behind him, he, the giant mourner, receives for one moment on his face the whole. But I am so unhappy, Septimus, said Rezia, trying to make him sit down. The millions lamented. For ages they had sorrowed. He would turn round. He would tell them in a few moments, only a few moments more, of this relief, of this joy, of this astonishing revelation, end quote. The man in gray coming toward them is evidently Peter Walsh. We get his perception of Rezia and Septimus as he passes them. And that is being young, Peter Walsh thought as he passed them. To be having an awful scene, the poor girl looked absolutely desperate in the middle of the morning. But what was it about, he wondered. What had the young man in the overcoat been saying to her to make her look like that? What awful fix had they got themselves into both to look so desperate as that on a fine summer morning. This causes Peter to consider the multitude of cultural changes that have taken place in England in the five years that he has been away, from 1918 to 1923. For example, he notices that women, even the most respectable, are now wearing more makeup, and even putting on makeup in public, which was apparently unheard of before. He reflects on the fact that people look different, newspapers seem different. Now, for instance, there was a man writing quite openly in one of the respectable weeklies about water closets. That you couldn't have done 10 years ago, written quite openly about water closets in a respectable weekly. Peter's train of thought takes him back to Sally Seaton again and then to another old friend, Hugh Whitbread, who is now some functionary in the government. Hugh had once tried to kiss Sally Seaton in the smoking room and it was shocking to everyone because Hugh was only interested in women with money and titles. Hugh did eventually marry some respectable lady and, quote, got some little post at court, looked after the king's cellars, Polished the imperial shoe buckles, went about in knee breeches and lace ruffles. How remorseless life is, a little job at court. We now learn why Peter has come to London. He has told Clarissa that he is there to inquire about a divorce for the woman with whom he's in love, but in fact, he's also trying to find a job. At 53, he had to come and ask them to put him into some secretary's office to find him some usher's job, teaching little boys Latin at the beck and call of some Mandarin in an office, something that brought in 500 a year, for if he married Daisy, even with his pension, they could never do on less. Peter has to humble himself and ask either Hugh Whitbread or Richard Dalloway for a job. Peter has some more memories of Clarissa and her, quote, extraordinary gift, that woman's gift of making a world of her own, wherever she happened to be. She came into a room, she stood, as he had often seen her, in a doorway with lots of people around her. But it was Clarissa, one remembered. Not that she was striking, not beautiful at all. There was nothing picturesque about her. She never said anything especially clever. There she was, however. There she was. So, what is it about Clarissa that so strikes Peter? Apparently, there is a kind of presence about her. Peter's thoughts are interrupted by the sound of a voice, perhaps that of a homeless woman singing an old song, a voice that he thinks is like a rusty pump. And once again, we have one of those moments where Wolf telescope's time, both backward and forward, seeming to encompass the whole history of the world. Through all ages, when the pavement was grass, when it was swamp, through the age of tusk and mammoth, through the age of silent sunrise, the battered woman, for she wore a skirt, with her right hand exposed, her left clutching at her side, stood singing of love. "'Love which has lasted a million years,' she sang, "'love which prevails, and millions of years ago her lover, "'who had been dead these centuries, had walked,' she crooned, "'with her in May. "'But in the course of ages, long as summer days and flaming, "'she remembered, with nothing but red asters, he had gone. "'Death's enormous sickle had swept those tremendous hills,' And when at last she laid her hoary and immensely aged head on the earth, now become a mere cinder of ice, she implored the gods to lay by her side a bunch of purple heather, there on her high burial place, which the last rays of the last sun caressed, for then the pageant of the universe would be over. This is one of the novel's many perceptions of deep time, that she contrasts with the present. It also unites Peter with the Smiths, because Septimus and Rezia also hear the old woman. Rezia says, Poor old woman, as they are about to cross the street. We learn a bit more about Septimus's backstory as he and his wife are on their way to see the renowned doctor, Sir William Bradshaw, whom I will discuss further in the next segment. As a young man, Septimus had aspired to be a poet. He had read widely Shakespeare, Keats, Darwin, and Shaw, and he had fallen in love with one of his teachers, Miss Isabel Pole, who had lectured on Shakespeare. He secures a job as a clerk in an office where his superiors felt he would have a promising career if he keeps his health. He was thought to be weak or sickly, and it was suggested that he should play football. However, war intervenes. Quote, Septimus was one of the first to volunteer. He went to France to save an England which consisted almost entirely of Shakespeare's plays and Miss Isabel Pole in a green dress walking in a square. There in the trenches, the change which Mr. Brewer desired when he advised football was produced instantly. He developed manliness he was promoted he drew the attention indeed the affection of his officer evans by name End quote. it will prove ironic that septimus goes to war to save the land of shakespeare and when he comes back he has no feeling for shakespeare or for poetry at all one of septimus's main problems is that he cannot feel at first when he survives the war He congratulates himself on feeling very little, and even when his friend Evans dies, he is not devastated by the event. But gradually, he begins to panic about the fact that he cannot feel anything. It is as if his feelings have been turned off. At the end of the war, he is billeted above a shop in Italy where a man and his daughters make hats, sewing and decorating them. Septimus proposes to the younger daughter, but even then he does it partly as a sort of self-prescription for his lack of feeling. One of the emotions that he does seem to experience at this stage is panic. Now, after the war, when Septimus tries to read, he is able to perceive the book intellectually, but there is nothing of the magic that existed before. In fact, He reads Shakespeare entirely differently now. Here he opened Shakespeare once more. That boy's business of the intoxication of language, Antony and Cleopatra, had shriveled utterly. How Shakespeare loathed humanity. The putting on of clothes, the getting of children, the sordidity of the mouth and the belly— This was now revealed to Septimus, the message hidden in the beauty of words, the secret signal which one generation passes under disguise to the next is loathing, hatred, despair. Dante the same. Aeschylus translated the same. There, Rezia sat at the table trimming hats. She trimmed hats for Mrs. Filmer's friends. She trimmed hats by the hour. She looked pale, mysterious, like a lily drowned under water, he thought. The English are so serious, she would say, putting her arms around Septimus, her cheek against his. Love between man and woman was repulsive to Shakespeare. The business of copulation was filth to him before the end, but Rezia said she must have children. They had been married five years. End quote. Septimus and Rezia read books and visit museums. But everything is empty to him now. He consults a physician, Dr. Holmes, a general practitioner, who says that there is nothing the matter with him, but clearly there is. So there was no excuse, nothing whatever the matter, except the sin for which human nature had condemned him to death, that he did not feel. He had not cared when Evans was killed, that was worst, but all the other crimes raised their heads and shook their fingers and jeered and sneered over the rail of the bed in the early hours of the morning at the prostrate body which lay realizing its degradation. How he had married his wife without loving her, had lied to her, seduced her, outraged Miss Isabel Pole. And was so pocked and marked with vice that women shuddered when they saw him in the street. The verdict of human nature on such a wretch was death. End quote. Dr. Holmes's diagnosis is that it is nerve symptoms and nothing more, and advises Septimus to take up some hobby. He says so you're in a funk, and that Septimus should just get up and do something, and he'll feel better. At this point, Septimus begins to have revelations that Evans is speaking to him from beyond the grave. We will take up the visit to the renowned Dr. Bradshaw at noon, which is the exact midpoint of the novel, next time.